And good evening or good morning or good afternoon or any, any time zones I'm missing. On a rotating globe, where we're in something like 190 countries. So welcome one and all to the other side of midnight, that time, that really magical time between dusk and dawn where we tackle things that during daytime, it used to be said that, oh, we've ignored that stuff. Well, actually, no more. So many of the things that are talked about at this time of night, depending upon what time zone you're in, now are talked about 24-7. I mean, look at our politics. Look at, uh, you know, that old watchword that I keep saying over and over again, the good are getting better and the bad are getting worse. There is all kinds of stuff going on. Tonight, I want to start with an emergency because I want all of you to kind of focus, remember, consciousness experiments. I want you to focus on Thailand on 12 kids and their soccer coach, making 13, who are trapped something like two miles underground in the middle of an incredibly labyrinthian cave system in Thailand, surrounded by limestone. Remember, limestone is very important from the conversations we've had on this show. And there is a huge international effort being mounted now to try to rescue these kids who were stranded uh, almost now three weeks ago, after a soccer game, apparently the coach took them for a field trip to this cave system as a surprise birthday present for one of the students. And things went incredibly downhill from there. They're apparently, it's the monsoon season over there. So they had a torrential rainstorm while they were in the cave system. And fortunately, they were in deep enough that it took a while for the water to get to where they were and they were able to get to higher ground in the cave system, but it took two weeks for a British team, an independent team flown over to, to volunteer to, to find these kids to locate them. And then, of course, the major problem is they can't get them out because in the two and a half miles or so between the entrance and where they are, which is almost a mile vertically down under this mountain, um, a whole bunch of interstitial pockets that are in that cave labyrinthian system have filled with groundwater because of the rain that went on earlier in the uh, a couple of weeks ago. So they're now expecting more rain. And this has become an international cause celeb. This reminds me so much of, a, of an adventure that I had listened to on radio decades ago of a ship on the North Atlantic and a struggling captain to keep her afloat, to get her into port after the crew had had to abandon her. Anyway, so with world media gathered in front of this cave, the Indonesian government tonight apparently had them all move back. And if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you go to tonight's show, which is Dr. Beverly Rubik for the 7th of July, click on that banner. That will take you to the Radio with Pictures page, to the guest page tonight. Scroll down. You'll see I have several items. One, two, three, and four all focused on this drama playing out literally on the other side of the world. And the most surprising thing of this drama is that Elon Musk has entered the fray. Apparently, he sent some engineers, and they're in the process of building something feverishly in Los Angeles, which they say will take something like 17 hours to get there. Because he's lending his uh, engineering expertise. He sent actually people, engineers, who will arrive, I believe, sometime tonight or early tomorrow. Remember, it's on the other side of the world, so it's 12 hours 
give or take difference. Anyway, we're going to keep an eye on that. And if we get any news during the show that the first uh, students have been rescued, we will obviously tell you. I mean, this is going to be so perilous, perilously harrowing for these guys because none of them can swim. None of them are divers. The youngest, I think, is 11. The oldest is, I think, 16. Then there's the 20-something coach. I think he's 20-something. So we got 13 people in very perilous situation because it's going to start raining again. When I say rain, I mean, if you've ever been in the tropics, you know that it rains like, you know, my grandmother used to say, cats and hammer handles. It really, 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 really rains. And that's how they got flooded in in the first place. And so getting them out is is a major, major undertaking at all different levels. So we're going to send our best thoughts. We're going to have you focus some time during the evening again and again on their well-being. Remember, we know that does work. And that actually is a very interesting segue because tonight we're going to be talking about this physics and this energy and how it can be used in many different ways to heal, to keep us from disease, to round out our spirits, to keep us in in psychiatric balance, all kinds of interesting things that this physics comes in handy for. And without further ado, let me introduce my guest of the evening, which is someone, an old friend of mine that I have not talked to literally in decades. We had our first brief conversation about 10 minutes ago. Dr. Beverly Rubick received her PhD in biophysics in 1979 at the University of California at Berkeley. Her scientific areas of interest include consciousness studies, bioelectromagnetics, water in regard to its living state, and alternative and complementary medicine. Rubik is especially known for her pioneering research on the biofield, the energy field associated with living organisms, and she has conducted exploratory research on Gijong masters and Reiki practitioners remotely affecting physical and biological systems. Rubik has measured the extremely low-level light biophotons emitted by living organisms in relation to health and various states of consciousness. She's also conducted studies on the effects of low-level electromagnetic fields on water and biological systems and discovered an effect of cell phone radiation on human blood. We're going to obviously talk a lot more about that. Beverly has won several awards for research, including the Alice and Elmer Green Award in, nine, in 2009 by the International Society for the Study of Subtle Energy and Energy Medicine and the Integrity and in Science Award by Weston A. Price Foundation in 2015. Well, I could go on and on, but all of this, of course, is published on the website. So just go to the other side of midnight and click on the guest page, and that will take you to the bottom to her bio. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff we're going to talk about, including a very important conference that she is chairing coming up, the Psychotronics Conference in um, – Uh, I'm not quite sure where it's being held this year. They move it around. But there is a clickable flyer, which you can go to just above Beverly's picture, down toward the bottom of the page. And you can actually click on the uh, abstracts for the various papers that are being given. So without further ado, Beverly Rubick, this is your life. No, this is the other side of midnight. Welcome. Thank you, Richard. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Tell us first about this conference, because I probably lost that part up. Where is it being held this year? 
Our conference will be at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Deerfield, Illinois, which is very close to the O'Hare Airport near Chicago. Ah, so it's just kind of centrally located in the country. Yes. Now, who all is going to be there? I mean, this this is a, a, an annual event, I presume, and you have speakers from all around the world. Who's Who are your highlights this year? Well, we have Jeffrey Mishlove, who um, is well known for his uh, internet television series, Thinking Aloud. And he's probably the only person with a doctorate in parapsychology from a major university, uh, University of California at Berkeley. So he's speaking on his studies on an amazing uh, a man who did psychokinesis uh, in an extraordinary way, uh, more than anyone else I've ever known. And we have, uh, let's see, Dan Davidson, who is an expert on the ether and who talks about how shape uh, can have power, that uh, shapes such as pyramids or vertices of uh, cubes and other forms uh, collect ether in those vertices and have rather extraordinary properties. Wow. And we have, uh, we have actually a total of 20 speakers, so now I don't have the list in front of me. I'm speaking on the ether, the history of it, and uh, really the neo-ether, because there's so much evidence for a need for a subtle substrate that fills up all of space that allows light to travel, and that may be involved in the gravitational force. Hmm. This sounds so complimentary to some of the work I've been doing. I mean, you and I have not talked for like 20-some years. I can't believe <laughs> it because it's like you and I talked yesterday. Yes. It's, it's like the conversation has not been interrupted, except you don't know all the weird research I've been doing, particularly on the torsion field, i.e. the ether, you know, mm. by any other name. The torsion field is what the Russians uh, gave it because it twists, it rotates, it spirals through space and time. Yes, and yes. That, and I'm familiar with that a little bit. Um, I actually have tried to detect the torsion field in our laboratory, and I think we have to some degree, for example, the stretching of a rubber band and the elasticity that can affect certain detectors. Um, so it's quite extraordinary uh, that entropic processes like stretching a rubber band and melting of ice can uh, do something with the space around it. Yeah, the, the, the Russians are very big on some of these things. Uh, in fact, uh, Nikolai Kozarev is the guy whose research kind of first got me into this, and he did all kinds of experiments with melting ice and, you know, clicking doors and attention focusing, and he used, in essence, a huge a torsion pendulum balanced on a needle and it would rotate and point toward the area of focus where something was affecting the field. And this is not EM, as you know. This is something deeper. Why do we call this stuff subtle? Why, why did that name get attached to these energies? I think because we do not believe it fits with electromagnetic theory as is, as uh as we've inherited it. In other words, there was the Maxwell theory of electromagnetics, and then there was the Heaviside formulation that came later, where he rewrote, or uh, I should say left out, many of the variables that Maxwell uh, identified with 20 equations, and Heaviside reduced it to only four. 
But I think if we go back to Maxwell's original theory with 20 equations and 20 unknowns, maybe we can accommodate these subtle energies such as torsion energy or uh, subtle life energy, the bioenergy. I'm not certain about that, but I have looked into the theory and realized that we've truncated the old theory of Maxwell and that textbooks don't even mention these original equations, that uh, what we've inherited the last almost 100 years has been uh, a very low-level version of electromagnetism. Yeah, Tom Bearden used to talk to me about this all the time and how that uh, Heaviside had savaged Maxwell's original equations, reducing them from 20 down to, what, 4. Plus, he also deep-sixed the mathematics that Maxwell used, which were quaternions, as opposed mm. to you know other forms of, of uh, modern mathematics. So, yeah, it's almost like we've had one arm tied behind us and a blindfold on in trying to understand energy vibrating around in the universe. So, um, let's see, this is such a vast field. It's, it's so so huge. Let me Let me back up and start at the beginning. How did you wind up, Beverly, getting a degree in biophysics at Berkeley? Because that's almost as unusual as, as, what's his name, getting the degree in parapsychology. <laughs> it is. Well, I was quite interested in the notion of a life energy, even as a teenager. Um, and even before that, when I was a little girl, I could sense energy around people and know about their health. And I don't know how I did this, but uh, then later that was educated out of me or I outgrew it. But uh, mm. consequently, I... I was quite interested in the notion of a life energy, and I remember reading uh, The Cancer Biopathy, a book by Wilhelm Reich, when I was a teenager. And that book was very hard to find in those years. I think it was on a forbidden list, as a matter of fact. Well, you know, Reich was actually put in prison for certain things he said that the FDA didn't like, and that's a whole huge turgid story. Right. And I've had a couple of researchers on talking about Reich. I wanted to talk about his orgone measurements as it relates to the things you've been into. But going back to what got you interested, so as a teenager, you were intrigued with the idea that you could physically feel other people, you could feel life energies – Yes, I, there's something about the energy around a person. You might, uh, I think, Vil, uh, let's see, uh, Kilner called it the human atmosphere historically. People mm. have referred it, to it as the human aura. And I've named it the biofield uh, because I believe it's a real energy. And then, of course, we had all of these different energy healings uh, from Reiki to therapeutic touch to healing touch, quantum touch, all of these things exploded in the late 70s. And that's when I had a remarkable healing experience that saved me from surgery oh my by God. one of these people. And so uh, I, I think it was a natural that I had to explore it further. I asked the question after I had this knee injury from ballet dancing and was scheduled for surgery, I had a healer who put her hands on my knee and I felt a jolt of something. And when I stood up, I had no more pain. And it did not come back. So consequently, I I would I wanted to study this, and I brought well, her into kind of the, a life changing experience. <laughs> yes, because in those days they didn't have medical imaging, so you had exploratory surgery or you suffered. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so, so this was I, just uh, someone that you met randomly, or was it someone well, that your parents brought to you, or I mean, how did that how did that come well, about? It, 
It, it was while I was in Berkeley. It was actually a very, a rather famous American healer. Her name was Olga Worrell. Olga was already quite elderly when I met her, and she's no longer with us in 3D. But uh, she was from Baltimore, and she worked in the Russian Orthodox Church there as a spiritual or energy healer. She called herself a faith healer, but she said she didn't really do anything. She just uh, prayed and was a conduit to some some universal source or divine source. And um, in fact, that's what a lot of energy healers believe today. People who do this, whether they're Reiki practitioners or therapeutic touch, believe that they're just empty conduits for some energy that's flowing through them and out their hands and that this energy goes and does something for the highest good. Mm. And that's, that's what Olga believed. And so being the recipient of this, and being a scientist and a biophysicist, naturally, I wanted to study it. And I brought Olga unofficially into the laboratory. I almost lost my uh, my position in graduate school <laughs> as a result of oh. this because I did it unofficially after hours. And I didn't know any better. I figured on the weekend, uh, let me just bring her in and let's see what she can do in some cell cultures under controlled conditions. So that's what I did. And sure enough, I found growth effects from her healing as no, well wait, as most wait, we have time we got you know hours yeah. here so let's let's go through carefully how do you detect something that's not electromagnetic in an objective reproducible way well i use a living system as a detector if if this is a bioenergy then it should uh, affect even the simplest living system namely e coli bacteria Okay. In the laboratory. And I, I don't have a meter for this energy. And even if it's electromagnetic, it's extremely low level. What's emitted by human hands is even more low level than what's emitted by the heart or the brain. Uh, and one would need very sophisticated instrumentation to even begin to measure that. But so you basically had Petri dishes with E. coli and other bacteria. And you had her, what, lay on hands on some and the others were controls and... Then you looked at their different rates of uh, mitosis or whatever? Yes, uh, although I did not have her hold the Petri dishes because there could be an effect of heating of the hands. Ah. But she placed her hands, say, 20 centimeters, uh, half a yard from the samples and just for a few minutes. And there were controls elsewhere in the room. And then I processed all of them, plated and counted cell numbers even the next day. And lo and behold... There was an effect uh, from her treatment. Now, there were some things that she could not do. I had also mutants that, uh, cell cultures that needed a particular nutrient that did not have it. They were starved. But what was fascinating is that she could, by placing her hands near those test tubes, she said, these are like the starving children of Africa. They can't oh grow. And she knew that she could not make so them she could she could feel a kind of a feedback system from them. Yes, my my. <laughs> but but she so, said she couldn't she couldn't she couldn't help them. Why? No, uh, she would have to manifest the missing material or mutate their DNA, um, and uh, that she could not do. At least in the studies I did with her, but she could make cells that were crippled by antibiotics, low low doses, or heat shock. Um, 
an exposure to a burst of heat that normally kills about half the bacteria, uh, say 57 degrees centigrade, 10 minutes, and then withdraw the heat source, and she could help them uh, make them grow. Uh, so, no, wait, wait. Are you saying she brought them back to life or she saved them from dying? Well, let me say that she stimulated the growth of those who were left. I can't say that she brought back the ones that were killed. I did give them what's called the LD50, the lethal dose that would wipe out half of them. But I can't be sure which cells she stimulated, whether mm. she brought back the dead <laughs> or whether she simply stimulated the living to divide faster. But she did enhance the growth of the culture as a whole. Hmm. So you started with her and simple, how did the university get upset about this? Does somebody come in on a weekend and say, what are you doing? Why is she holding a test? That kind of thing. Well, somehow it leaked out, you know, and I have to say my colleagues were not very um, favorable to what I was doing. And I'm talking about my peers, my fellow students. Uh, you know, the dogmatism runs strong in science. This was a very unconventional experiment. And um, even though well, I was those using, days, yeah. yeah, and I was using the rigor of controls and in every possible way. And I had worked with these same cell cultures already for years. This was at the tail end of my dissertation work. So I really knew the ropes of working with this species. And still there was resistance and uh, tremendous uh, um, antagonism. And I think they told the dean so that's how it got out. Oh. But anyway, I, I was just reprimanded and told never to do this again. And so I didn't. But uh, I managed to get through uh, the dissertation, etc. So you say that other cultures in the room were not affected. How did you know that you didn't have to isolate them on the other side of Berkeley or something? Because um, I remember some work years ago. I'm from trying to remember the remote viewing that showed there was no inverse square relationship. It didn't matter whether you were in the same room or 5,000 miles away. It was the attention, the direction of attention, as opposed to physical proximity. How did you arrange that in terms of controls? Well, I actually did not tell Olga about the controls. So therefore, her intention could not go there. Oh. <laughs> and my understanding is where mind goes, chi flows, or the energy flows. So by not telling her about the controls, uh, I prohibited her from even thinking. It's like saying, don't think of elephants. And then, of course, everyone <laughs> thinks of elephants. Of so course. if you don't mention elephants, then they can't think of them. But you knew where they were. How did you know it wouldn't piggyback on your attention? Well, I didn't know that. And let me say that, you know, my experiments, this was done in the 70s, um, were really some of the first few on spiritual or energy healing. And so we didn't have uh, fixed protocols about how to do this work. But I considered the healing that she was doing local and not, not distant or non-local. So I considered what she was doing was near her hands and with her focused intent and prayer. And that's something... 30 feet away, uh, not known to her, would be unaffected. And I considered my mind not to be involved in uh, confounding the experiments. <laughs> okay. A lot of well, that was that, that was how you felt then. How would you do it now if you were doing it again? 
Well, I, I actually did it again. Uh, about 15 years ago, I got an NIH grant to study this very thing and do oh it God. at a very high level. Congratulations. Yes. So um, it was one of the few frontier medicine and biofield uh, grants, exploratory grants, that the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine uh, handed out. Uh, the, uh, the request for applications was 1999, but the grants weren't really funded until about 2002. Tremendous delay because of resistance at the NIH. I can imagine. <laughs> I can well imagine. So when I did it again, of course, Olga had passed on, but now there are many modalities of this type of healing. I did it in a double-blind way. You know, I had a technician do all the labeling and uh, I didn't know which sample was what ah. and processing them and plating them. And we took them out of the room where the healers were treating. We also put all of the samples in a cardboard box with a fixed distance then between hands and samples so that there could be no tissue heating. We had thermistors in the box to measure any potential heating of from the hands. And we showed that there was no heating plus or minus uh, 0 0.001 degree. Oh, centigrade. my God, what, what so, temperature sensitivity, yeah. <laughs> so we made sure that there were no confounders. Um, and then I also monitored the healer psychologically, whether the session was uh, good for them, whether they felt good about it. I even monitored my own feelings and thoughts that day as the experimenter, be sure that I wasn't um, different on a, having an unusual day. So I took into account many factors, both psychological, interpersonal, um, every possible confounder that one can think of. I removed all sorts of electropollution in my laboratory. No Wi-Fi, nothing. Okay. And how many series of experiments did you do in this, in this run? Well, I did. I think it was about 20 energy healers, and they came in for maybe four test runs each. Oh, and my. So the, you really ranged the waterfront. Yes, and some of the runs were just presenting them with the cell cultures, and in other uh, runs, we actually gave them a needy patient, a pain patient to work on first, figuring that it's really abstract to present energy healers with a bunch of test tubes. They're used to working on people. So mm -hmm. let's give them a needy patient. So you wanted work. an emotional connection. Yes. And then immediately following their treatment of the patient, then uh, presented them the test tube so that she hopefully was already flowing. And now all they have to do is uh, continue. Well, well, wait, you, you, you just use a term. Chi? Is this the, the Chinese qi. version of, uh, of hyperdimensional torsion field ether physics <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> Yeah, well, the Chinese have used that word for probably 5,000 years. That's the subtle energy or the so-called life energy, the universal life energy that fills the universe and can be manipulated by humans and other living things. And what Qigong masters are masters of gathering and manipulating. Hmm. So you had them work on a needy patient. Was this all of them or just some of them? Well, that was only in certain trials. Um, okay. Because I was testing the effect of what I called healing context. In other words, I was creating a healing context by bringing in a needy patient on some tests, some days. And on other days, I brought in the same healers by individual appointment. And they, test, they uh, treated only bacteria. So that we compared the two conditions of healing context 
and bacteria only. And you had each healer do what? How many runs? How many experiments? Well, the actual details I don't remember now, but I think we ran at least about 80 separate experiments. Oh, my. Yes. So we had about, I think, 20 energy healers in four conditions or four independent, independent experiments on different days. And did they get better at this? Did you see like a progression or was it like out of the box they were 100%? I mean, again, pretend I don't know anything because I don't. So, Well, I can't say that I looked for whether they improved uh, because I didn't have maybe enough data points. But I did find individual variations between healers, although uh, Reiki does not admit to that. And Reiki says that anybody can do this equally and it doesn't matter what state of consciousness mm. they're in. And that's not what I found. I'll tell you what, hold it there. I want to pick this up right where we left off. You're at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Dr. Beverly Rubick, who is an old friend. I mean, well, she's not old, but it's been a long time since we talked. And it's so weird. It's like we just talked yesterday. Maybe we'll talk about that, too. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the Kinthea, our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the open hailing frequencies room 
which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the Bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, <clears throat> here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials <clears throat> to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5. Literally, the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back on this Saturday night, the 7th of July. I want to direct your attention again to what's going on in Thailand right now. They're, they're beginning or they're about to begin because they apparently moved all the media down from the mountain to several hundred feet away. I'm not quite sure why they did that, but they're apparently going to try to go in. And the there have been several different protocols suggested for saving these kids, including Musk's idea, which is to create little individual submarines like a like a um back in the days when nasa was talking about escape from the space station they had like a a a, a ball that you'd crawl into and it would have retro rockets and it would have oxygen and radio and all that and they base it you know would separate it from the uh space station and it would retro and then lose lose velocity enter the atmosphere and fall into the ocean somewhere well i think musk is suggesting something like that and if I remember the latest news reports, and again, you can check by going to the links that I've got there in Radio with Pictures, apparently they, his engineers have actually built something or are in the process of building it, and they're going to be flying it to Thailand in the next few hours. So we will keep uh, focused on that, and obviously I want everyone to think of the best possible outcome, all these kids and their soccer coach safe and out of these caves in the next several days apparently there's a window before the next monsoon rains start and it's not weeks it's a matter of a couple of days so think good thoughts speaking of which my guest this morning dr beverly rubrick and we're talking about the effect of thinking good thoughts 
And Beverly, this is so remarkable because you're one of the first, in fact, probably the only one that I know, that I actually know, who's done this and has actually got measurable results from someone thinking good thoughts. Pick up there, please. <laughs> well, you know, it's a 5,000-year-old principle of oriental medicine that where the mind goes, the energy flows, and the flesh and blood follow. So in other words, uh, they understood the mind-body connection 5,000 years ago, maybe even longer, and now science is beginning to accept it, test it, etc. But my work even goes beyond uh, the health of an individual who might put their intent toward improving their health, but that the intention of a healer working on yet another person or uh, a bacterial culture can effectively make a difference, can improve their health. Okay, here's a really important question. And this comes up in connection with Reich and the whole organ thing and applicability of this field, this energy to cancer and whatever. It was Reich's idea that people get ill because they basically will themselves to get ill, not consciously, but unconsciously. So this brings us back, can a healer make someone well if the patient really ultimately does not want to get well? That's a good question, Richard. I don't know that anyone has studied that per se, but I have to say that most people consciously want to get well. So you have to really work on a good instrument to ascertain the state of the unconscious. <laughs> so that's a tough experiment in mm. my view, because how do you uncover the unconscious uh, predisposition of someone? Yeah, because I know people that are ill and they keep wanting to get better, but their illness has become their life. It's become their identity. It's become their almost their soul. And I think this is incredibly destructive because it's like their resin d'etre for existing is their disease. I mean, this is really a pathology. How do you how do you tackle that from the outside? Well, I, I have to say that I'm not a clinician, so I haven't dealt with that question. Um, you know, I'm doing basic research that would support our understanding of energy healing um, within the own one's own body as well as uh, between two people, the practitioner-patient relationship. But I think that that's a very tough question. There are so many variables when you think about human illness and, and healing, and we don't really understand them all. And certainly the unconscious or subconscious mind is a big factor, but... It's really hard to study that because how do you measure it? Mm. Well, isn't that the problem of the field? I mean, if you're going to really open up a whole new field of, you know, disciplined, on demand, it works every time healing, you got to get a handle on all these variables, right? Well, I'm working on the physics of that. I can't work on all the psychological variables. I, I rely on my psychologist friends to do that. I'm actually trying and I have given voice to this for decades, uh, I'd love to map the human energy field. We know so little about it. And we had the Human Genome Project, and then we found out that we have less genes than a grain of rice. Isn't that enlightening? <laughs> so, Well, that raises all kinds of interesting questions like, where is consciousness really? It's not in our genes, apparently. No. 
So, I mean, let, let's continue that. Where is consciousness? After decades of doing this work, have you come to any conclusions about where consciousness is and how a, quote, healer can do this? Or can anybody do this if they're in the right frame of mind? Well, let me start with, you know, consciousness. Um, and again, it's more of a personal belief than a scientific finding. This is a big question. Nobody really knows and it's called the hard problem in philosophy. What is the relationship between conscious, this ethereal consciousness and our physical bodies? So really there is no known answer yet. I would say, I think about it this way. Uh, I know the brain is sort of like important because when part of the brain is taken away, people lose function. But I think of the brain more like a television set and the consciousness is really coming oh. in. And the brain is tuning into uh, what we've come to decide is ourselves. So when, it's, and, the, it's, the, it's the receiver model. The yes, brain is just a, a receiver, receiver model. <laughs> and that we are, uh, by my spirituality, uh, I would say that the human being is a pore of the divine. But we're all individual pores and, and unique. And so we're tuning into an aspect of divinity, uh, and that's who we are. And if we open up... Uh, those doorways a little more and, and get our egos out of the way, then we have a clearer connection and we can bring through, I would say, uh, more wonderful creative ideas, uh, works of art, etc., cetera, hmm. uh, and even healing abilities. So, Okay, let, let's go back to the experiments because I love experiments, okay? Did you look to the idea that maybe all healing is not created equal, meaning if you do it at midnight and you do it at 6 a.m., it's different. In other words, there's some cosmic relationship to the rotation of the Earth. Because uh, Dean Radin asked me years ago, he showed me a study of, um, I'm trying to remember uh, what study it was. It was it was 20 or 30 years of accumulated um, parapsychological experiments. And he had this huge peak, which apparently aligned with the galaxy, with the center of the galaxy. And he asked me, uh, you know, how would you explain that? And I, um, I'm wondering if you found the same kind of sidereal time connection between the healers doing their, you know, experiments and times when it would work better and times when it would work less better. Is that a word? Well, it is now. Yes, that's a good question. You know, I didn't ask that question in my study, but I kept the time the same every day so that I controlled the time because recognizing there are circadian and sidereal rhythms in our lives. So everybody came in at 2 p.m. <laughs> and that's when we did the experiment. But so this was, was about, uncivil time. So it would actually change with, yes, with the stars it would by change four minutes every sidereally. day. Yeah, yeah, sidereally it was uncontrolled, but with respect to solar time, it was the same. So I, I can't say my data set was big enough, and I'm familiar with that meta-analysis that you mentioned, whereby it's been shown psychic activity across many experiments peaks at 13.5 hours, sidereal time. So that's not solar time, and it's always changing. It means the, the Milky Way is really pretty black, what's above you, and most of the Milky Way is on the other side of the Earth, blocked by the Earth. Yeah, but does the Earth really block it? In other words, this these energies, mm -hmm. is the Earth like 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 neutrinos are supposed to go right through what two or three hundred light years of lead? That some absurd number. How do you know the Earth blocks or does it block 
these energies if they're connected to the stars. Well, the Earth is blocking the visible light, at least, because you don't see those stars. But you're right. There's neutrino flux. There's uh, cosmic rays and many other things that are, are getting through. But it's a very intriguing finding. And it was across many experiments done by many experimenters. I didn't have a large enough data set to do that kind of analysis with about 80 runs in my experiment. But I think it's a worthy question. So if the NIH funded you to do something once, what are the odds they'll do it again? Well, that's an interesting thing because the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine is staffed by uh, a director that's presidentially appointed. So every time we get a new U.S. president, the administration changes. And over the years, it became more and more conservative. And virtually no energy medicine has been funded in recent years. So it seems like they don't put out any requests for application in this area. And um, it's very unfortunate because there were very good results from the experimental uh, laboratories that did this work in the early 2000s. And now all of that is gone. And there's no leadership organization that I know of in the federal government that's funding work of this type. So it makes it very difficult to find ongoing funding uh, because philanthropy is often very fickle. You know, they give you grants now and then, and then they turn their attention to something else. Mm. So it's kind of ego-driven in terms of private individuals. Yes, or just based on their personal interests. Um which are always changing, and they don't understand the need for continuity in scientific research as government programs have uh, conventionally. But I think that NIH is still largely controlled by uh, the biomolecular bioreductionist paradigm. Uh, You know, the big pharma and the FDA and the NIH are pretty much all the same mindset. And anything that's so challenging, such as energy medicine, is in the doghouse with respect to those agencies. Hmm. So, okay, I wanted to save this for later, but we might as well get into it right now. How do we change it? What are the politics of getting funding for something that's not big pharma? Well, I'm always looking for new foundations, new philanthropy to do this. I... I spent a lot of time working at the NIH. I was one of 18 advisors to the initial uh, Office of Alternative Medicine in 1992 and subsequently advised the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. And then I saw the writing on the wall that uh, uh, this is not going to stay as good as it once was. Uh, The lid had been put on it, and they can fund certain things like dietary supplements and mind-body medicine, maybe prayer, but they're not going to fund energy medicine. And I think one of the reasons that it seriously challenges the paradigm much more than those other modalities and would even undermine pharmaceutical medicine. Uh, Think about this. If we can do with a particular frequency, broadcast a frequency through a device or imbued in water that someone drinks, that can do the job of a drug without any residual drug that the liver has to metabolize, without any side effects, 
then that's a big challenge to the powers that be. Well, it undercuts the whole, you know, profit motive for, for medicine. That's right. So that's the reason I think it's not worthwhile to pursue change at this time at the what's now the National Center for Integrative and Complementary Medicine, because I think that the paradigm is so ingrained. And then the change every four years with presidential elections makes it very difficult to have continuity in scientific initiatives. Hmm. Okay, let's go back to your experiments, because you did get this grant. Um, you know, this is not like a Bevatron, which there was one at Lawrence there up at Berkeley. This is not, you know, rockets, so it's not, you know. What's the primary expense in doing these kinds of tests? Well, it's managing a laboratory, paying personnel for their time. Uh, I have all the equipment, although I'd like additional equipment, <laughs> of course, uh, to add other measures. Uh, biofield mapping uh, would be one important thing. I would also like to see a consortium of scientists uh, working together rather than individuals in isolation. Most of us who've done research on this have worked in isolation. And it's very different from collaborative consortiums like the Human Genome Project, where there are huge collaborations, and you really get a big piece of work done when you have that. But we just have people limping along. And I've seen this for 40 years now, of people limping along, trying to um, make a significant uh, breakthrough in this field. It hasn't happened. Okay, let me ask, uh, kind of move sideways. <clears throat> is the Psychotronics Association a group of people trying to do research in these fields, or is it a kind of a meeting place where you meet and compare what you found, but you basically are on your own to find funding and, you know, think up experiments? Well, the U.S. Psychotronics Association is um, a lot of people who believe in the power of consciousness, many of whom are practitioners of modalities such as radionics, uh, the use of devices to uh, prime intention or facilitate intention across distances to make nourishing change, or other energy medicine devices. So some of them are practitioners. There are some scientists who are looking at the power of consciousness and the biofield in healing uh, or in other applications. And there are just a lot of interested people who uh, believe in this paradigm uh, who are following it. So it's it's quite a mixture of people who are members. But they don't give out grants. They don't have a funding source or angels or whatever to basically fund research. Not yet. That, that would be a nice thing if we could attract philanthropy and manage uh, grants to to develop a consortium of researchers. That's one of my goals as president of the organization. But... Um, that hasn't happened yet. So, so you're there not far from Silicon Valley, which is the home to a whole bunch of newly birthed millionaires, and some even are billionaires. It just seems to me there should be some way to tap into that pioneering spirit, which is the heart of Silicon Valley, to tap off some of those funds to do this stuff. I mean, has anybody ever tried? Well, we've had some uh, grants from Silicon Valley, from the Community Foundation there, and from some individual philanthropists. But but um, it comes and goes. <laughs> That's how it is. And uh, Do you remember you know, that I circle think... of very strange folks with money called the donuts that <clears throat> we used to talk to? 
Yeah, I've heard about the donuts. I, I really haven't seen them in recent years. I didn't even know they still existed. I didn't know they I didn't know they do or do not exist. So it's but it seems to me they're right there in the Bay Area and they were into unusual things. That's why they were intrigued with my research on Mars. So I would think that they would be kind of primed because they were young when I knew them. They're getting older. And people who get older tend to think more about their health, goodly or badly. So maybe that would be an avenue for getting more because they had a lot of money. And the reason they call themselves donuts is because they said to me one day, well, it's because our dough is driving us nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So it seems well, to me that might be useful. Yes, and I'll certainly pursue that. Uh, I've got a lot of irons in different fires Um trying to excite philanthropists, uh, but it's usually small amounts of money. And uh, I'd like a larger amount over a longer time so that we could really pull together a, a collective group. And I, I, mean, I know I those mean, groups. You're, you're <laughs> talking, what, hundreds of thousands, not millions or billions. I mean, it should no. be, you know, it's That's kind of right. reasonable. Yeah, It's very reasonable. That's right. And it's... Um, with a huge payoff. I mean, stunningly huge payoff. Let's let's go back to your, your, your trials during the NIH grant. What were the major conclusions of your study? You said you had a limited number, 20 or 30, and you did, what, 80 to 100 trials? Yes. We found that the healing context worked far better than just presenting bacterial cultures to energy healers in terms of they're able to simulate the growth of the, the, the cells that were heat shocked, damaged by heat shock. So uh, we didn't find a significant difference when we just brought bacteria in and said, here you go, treat these cells, they've been damaged. And um, so the, the, the healing context appeared to be important uh, for priming the energy flow or uh, helping the whole experiment happen. I actually okay, had that hypothesis. So, remind, me, remind me again, what is this healing context? Bringing in a needy patient for oh, the that, energy that healer protocol. to treat, okay. and then immediately presenting them with bacterial cultures. So you found a difference between <clears throat> the, the, the segue from the person to the culture as opposed to just the culture? You found a difference? Yes. Oh, so and it's kind of like priming the pump, the the juices right. had to be flowing, the energy had to be right, they had to be focused, they had to be in the groove. Right. Was that, was that kind of all those smooshy things that were going That's on? That's right, all of that. And, you know, I had, since 1979 and 1999 was 20 years, I was dabbling with energy healing research over that time and had discovered that on my own that I suspected that this healing context was important. So that's why I put it into the experiment. And it proved to be very important because these people are working on people. They have no mm. clue what's going on with a bunch of test tubes and most of them can't relate to it. So um, now did you try more lovable organisms like bunnies or marigolds or petunias or you know, mice, or in other words, living little beings as opposed to bacteria? Well, not in my NIH-funded studies. Subsequently, I did some experiments on distant healing and plant growth, and even involving some uh, pyramids, of all things, some pyramidal shapes, 
which also seem to enhance plant growth. When plants are placed under a pyramidal structure, uh, like made of equilateral triangles for them, joined together with a, a square base, uh, plants grow faster and better. And wait, I found wait, wait, that wait, wait, healers... You mean, you, you mean putting plants in a tetrahedron makes them grow faster? Well, a pyramid, a little different than a tetrahedron. Like the Cheops Pyramid of Egypt. Oh, okay, okay. Four-sided uh, square base. All right. But I used equilateral triangles, so it wasn't quite the sacred geometry of the Cheops Pyramid, but uh, easier to make. Nonetheless, uh, we found it was something on the order of 17% more biomass of plants, a very uh, clear parameter, plant dry weight, weigh it on an analytical balance. Mm -hmm. And the healer result alone was about the same. And the com combination of putting plants under a pyramid and having healers treat was about 32%. It was almost twice as good. Oh, so it doubled. Almost. Yes, it was wow. a synergistic effect. How interesting. So your conclusion was that the whole pyramid energy thing actually has its root, pun intended, in real physics? Well, yes. And I have to say I didn't believe in any of that stuff. I always looked at pyramid energy and thought, oh, boy, this is really woo-woo, <laughs> even for me. <laughs> and yet <laughs> when I did the experiments, there it was. Uh, there was an effect. And I didn't try other shapes. That would have been a good control. I should have tried a cube, uh, maybe a tetrahedron, and some other shapes. In subsequent experiments, we can do this. But uh, the pyramid shape, uh, of course, it's um, there are many parts of the world where there are these giant pyramids, and people wonder, what are they doing? There's all kinds of speculations. They were graves for the pharaohs, but I think there was a lot more to them. And energetically, how are they manipulating the ether or the etheric energy, the space energy? Hmm. So, I think they right. may be acting as some kind of foci for a universal life energy. A foci or amplifiers? Solid yes. state amplifiers? Yes, it could okay. be an amplifier or um, like a lens focusing. Okay. Say what, we're at the top of the hour. Why don't we hold it here? Because I have millions of questions. Too many questions, not enough time. My guest this morning, Dr. Beverly Rubick. We're talking about the biofield, the torsion field, the ether. How many names do you want to give it? You know, it's all apparently the same elephant. And we'll pick up this elephant when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And as I said a moment ago, we shall return. Dot com. 
Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, And I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>